All right, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 through 13. And we'll be dealing with the subject this morning of harden not your hearts. Harden not your hearts. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning there in verse number 7. The Bible says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Let me draw your attention back to verse number 8. The very clear declaration by the writer is, Harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. If I was to ask you this morning what leads to men and women not listening to the voice of God, it proceeds really from one place and one place only. It proceeds from the hardness of the heart. Uh, It appears here, as given in illustrative purposes, the hardness of the heart that appeared in the Israelites is now compared to a danger that even us, as what we'll refer to as these New Testament believers, uh, can fall prey to. A hardened heart. Uh, Oftentimes we see God in the Old Testament dealing with the nation of Israel and giving them opportunity after opportunity to have their hearts dealt with. And again, we find that very difficult line between the hardening of the heart that God does and then the hardening of the heart that man himself does. We see that principle in the heart of Pharaoh when the Bible says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart, but then we see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It is that mystery of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. But there is this warning here about being aware of the hardening of our own heart. Uh, Israel's conduct in the wilderness, of course, was an issue that drew the provoking uh, hand of God. Uh, What God has in view and what the object which God had in view with dealing with the nation of Israel was in fact to bring them to a place of humility, to prove them, to test them, to bring them to a place to really show what's in their heart. As we say many, many times, it is impossible for any of us to truly know what's in the heart of each other. Uh, I cannot sit here and look at you today and say, I know your heart. Uh, You could be seated here today with a heart that is as hard as stone. Uh, You could sit here today and be present and have a heart that is hardened uh, by sin, uh, that is one that is, you you are almost daring God to break the hardness of that heart. Uh, it is, it is a, a provoking of God, and we can be guilty of that. You know, we can be brought to a place where our hearts become so hardened that we're almost 
asking God uh, to d- deal with us. Uh, Israel, of course, Deuteronomy 8 tells us about God testing them in the wilderness to see if they would keep his commandments or not. And so the warning here is based upon history. The writer of Hebrews, the writing of this letter under the inspiration of the Spirit, is using history to now point to the now. He's warning these believers to not fall prey to the same example or the same outcome that they did. Their hearts became hardened, and as a result, they provoked God, and it's referred to as the day of temptation. If someone is to say, what is that great sin? The great sin is the sin of unbelief. Now, we know that the unpardonable sin is the the granting to Satan of being responsible for the works of God. That is what's referred to as the unpardonable sin. But you realize that unbelief is what keeps a man or woman from being in the family of God. Uh, A person could be found as a murderer, yet to later repent and believe in Christ, they would find themselves in the family of God. The Apostle Paul was a murderer, and yet we have great assurance that he came to belief, he came to faith in Christ, that he is in heaven even as we speak. But this unbelief is a serious offense. Now, we read Psalm 95 for our call to worship this morning because verses 7 through 11 of Hebrews 3 are a direct quotation from that psalm. Uh, These were people who professed to be God's people, but underneath and even outwardly, they were rebels. They were complainers. They were murmurers. Uh, Sometimes we have falsely believed that all those people that came out of Israel ultimately ended up in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, they ended up in heaven. I don't think that's true at all. I think even those that had seen the great deliverance through the Red Sea, uh, just because they got through the Red Sea doesn't mean that every single one of them ended up on the shores of heaven. As a matter of fact, I would, I would say that from Scripture, you see that most of them who came through uh, maybe never truly believed. And yet, we refer to them as they profess to be God's people. The 95th Psalm in which we looked at had some of those very same words in which the writer of Hebrews uses here. But those words in the 95th Psalm also belong to Jesus, the Messiah. Christ is the subject of the 95th Psalm. Uh, Christ is the rock of our salvation. Everything in Psalm 95 has great reference and direct uh, reference to Christ himself. He is God. Uh, He is to be worshiped. Uh, He is to not be dealt with in a flippant or a light manner. He's represented in that psalm as the shepherd, and we are the sheep, and we are his people. And so it is the basis or the overview of Psalm 95 that really is the context of Hebrews 3. Now you'll notice again those great theological words that we often come in contact with when we read Scripture, the word wherefore. And of course, that is a reference to everything that has now been said. And again, to just take this message today and not consider what we've already heard over the last number of months uh, would be a serious mistake. Remember, he's talking about how he proved that Christ was superior to Moses. He proved how that Christ was, it is Christ who built the house. It's Christ who is the builder of the house. And so he warns here that because of everything that's been said, as the Holy Ghost saith, 
today if you will hear his voice. So consider all that's been said to you. Consider all that has been presented to you. He delivers this very sobering exhortation, which is that direct quote from Psalm 95. And he's enforcing upon their minds. He's doing it in a way to say, I don't want you to miss this. Now, one side note we can see, a very important side note, is we do see a conclusive proof about the actual inspiration of the Scriptures. Notice the writer makes mention today or wherefore as the Holy Ghost says. Now today, we know that we hold in our hands, if you hold a copy of God's Word in your hand, you are holding the inspired Word of God. Every word was penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved and these writers penned the words. It is literally God's Word. So the warning goes out just as it went to them. As the Holy Spirit says, I want you to take heed to what's being said. Today, if ye will hear his voice. This corresponds exactly with what the Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 2.13 when he says, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but rather what the Holy Ghost teaches. Today, it is not a call to heed my word. It's a, heed, it's a call to heed the Holy Spirit's word. Harden not your heart. As the Holy Spirit speaks, don't harden your heart to what you're hearing. The 95th Psalm, of course, was written by David. He also quotes it in Hebrews 4. The writer quotes it again in Hebrews 4, verse 7. This phrase ends up again, and it says again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Harden not your heart. The account that, of course, the writer of Hebrews is making reference to is the rebellion of Israel in the wilderness. And as they traveled and journeyed through the wilderness, there is the account of the journey of these people who claim to be God's people. They are wandering through the wilderness, and yet that is used as an illustration repeatedly throughout the New Testament to warn us about what happened to them. Don't think this can't happen to you. Like if you're sitting here today thinking, I can never have my heart so hard to the things of God that I want nothing to do with Him, you're foolishly speaking today. You can harden your heart to a place where you don't even care anymore. Now the reality is, is this hardening process is often, and most, and we'll see this this morning, this hardening process is the result of how we view Sin and how we view sin in our own life. In Jude 5, Jude foretells about the departure from the faith that would take place. And he addresses those, and he said he puts them in remembrance. And he says, How that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward he destroyed them that believe not. There was this great destruction of many who came across that Red Sea who did not believe him, and as a result, he destroyed them. Much like many of the things that we see uh, try to be portrayed in media and entertainment, 
uh, that wilderness journeying of the Israelites was really a journey of unbelief. They were people who were partaking of the manna from heaven. They were people who were partaking of God's goodness. They were people who were receiving the blessings and benefits of God, but they were only professing to be God's people. They were walking around with very hardened hearts. There's no question in my mind, and not necessarily just our church, but there are people seated in churches all over this world whose hearts are as hard as, as stone who are professing to be believers, but their hearts haven't been moved in sometimes years because it can happen. We evidently are taught here that they're described even in Numbers chapter 14. If you'd like to turn all the way back to that Old, Old Testament book, in Numbers 14, which describes some of this journey, we'll, we'll reference a few of these passages. Uh, Numbers 14 really has to do with Israel and really all of its rebellion. Um, it, it is a, it's a sad chapter in the book of Numbers. But I want to draw your attention to, to Numbers 14, verses 22 through 24. It says, because all those men, now notice what he says, which have seen my glory and my miracles. So let's just stop there. He's referring to people who actually saw what God could do. They actually saw what God did. Which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these 10 times. These 10 times have not hearkened to my voice. So there's a very specific reference saying there were 10 times they would not listen to my voice. 10 times. I imagine our patience with somebody else who wouldn't listen 10 times would have ended about the third time. But he said 10 times they have continually, willfully hardened their heart against me to where they would not listen to me. I surely, or surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Now you'll notice that it clearly identifies that Caleb had another spirit within him. This is a line of demarcation. This is a line that says this is the difference between the mark of a believer and the mark of somebody who isn't. This, this person has another spirit, and he says he's the one going in. Why wouldn't the others? Because they would not, these ten times, they have not hearkened to my voice. Eventually, we know that God's people did go into the promised land, although many of those who were of the original who came through never saw the promised land. But their entrance into Canaan did not stop the writer of Hebrews from warning us that even some that went in were not believers. Now, there are people today who are experiencing the blessings of God, and yet they are not of the family of God. God, God pours his, his, his grace upon the believers and even unbelievers in this world. But the difference is, is that we're taught that Israel's provoking of him a provoking of God and the punishment that he doled out to them is supposed to be for our exhortation and our admonition. 1 Corinthians 10, 
Paul specifically says, what happened to Israel should be a lesson to you. And of course, he's primarily dealing with Israel and their idol worship, which is primarily. But I want you to see what Paul writes here. Verse 1 in, verse, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for our examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that think he stands take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but as such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted. Above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Everybody likes the temptation verses that say God will make a way of escape, but they fail to understand the context was the way of escape that you will not be tempted to harden your heart and act as if the Israelites did. The temptation is to act exactly the way that the Israelites did. The temptation is to harden your heart through the lust of your own flesh and to the desires of your own heart. The way of escape to be tempted is that God will make a way to escape that temptation. Now again, does God make a way in temptation when we're tempted by other things? Absolutely. But don't lose the context of what Paul was talking about here. Paul was saying what happened to Israel ought to be you ought to take notice of that and don't miss it. Don't miss why they got in the situation that they got into. Don't miss the hardening of your own heart. And he goes on in Hebrews and he, he goes along and tells us exactly why things happened. So go back to Hebrews 3 and look at, look at what it says here. He says, today, if ye will hear his voice. Now, what, who was God's primary mouthpiece to Israel in the wilderness? It was Moses. Yet, how many times do we see in those Old Testament accounts the people rejecting Moses? They rejected his word. They rejected his leadership. They rose up and said, who is Moses? Why does Moses get to be in charge of us? The wickedness of the people of Israel in the wilderness is, is really unfathomable if you actually read it how wicked and bad things got. They wanted to overthrow God's voice. They wanted Moses nowhere near them. And we blame it, and they wanted to blame it on bad leadership. It wasn't about bad leadership. It was about we don't want the voice of God. 
We don't want his voice. Now they used excuses like, well, look what Moses has done. He's brought us out of Egypt where we had, we had three square meals a day. And now all we get in the wilderness is this awful manna. And it's so bad, I just want to spit it out. You're spitting out the provision of God, yet they don't want to hear the voice of God. God speaks to us by His Son. We learned this all the way back in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, when it said, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Whose voice are we to hear today? We are to hear the voice of Jesus Christ Himself. Hear His voice. Today, if you will hear His voice, what are the voices of Jesus Christ Himself? They are the precepts, the principles of Christ. To hear them is not just to hear them audibly, but to hear them and respond to them by doing them because we find pleasure in His Word. Our greatest source of joy is in the voice of God. Our our greatest source of rejoicing ought to be hearing the voice of God. It ought to still astonish you that through the Spirit, you can hear God's voice speaking to you. If that was suddenly taken away from us, even for an instant, and we were aware that it was gone, I can't even begin to describe to you how radically your life would be changed if the voice of God was no longer heard. Because we don't realize as believers how often the voice of God is being heard by us through the Spirit. Because the Spirit is testifying of Jesus Christ day after day, month after month, year after year. We're hearing the voice of God. And yet the writer warns there can come a day when you will harden your heart to a place where you will not hear the voice of God. To hear His voice that speaks of the love of Jesus Christ, that speaks of His grace, His mercy, of His peace, of our reconciliation, of our pardon of sin, of our salvation. These are the voices of God that is speaking to us. To hear it is not just to hear it externally, but to hear it and understand it. To truly understand who God is. When Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, you realize today not every single person in this world even hears His voice. He doesn't say everyone in the world hears me. He says my sheep hear my voice. That means there is a clear mark, those that can hear and those who cannot hear. If you hear the voice of God today, you are one of his sheep. You are one of his. Can you imagine that many, many people you come in contact with a week, there are people you come in contact with who cannot hear the voice of God. No matter what you say to them, they can't hear the voice of God because God is not residing in them. We can understand it and we can distinguish His voice from the voice of a stranger. We believe what we hear. But notice what the response is. He says, today if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Now, we understand that there is a natural hardness of heart which all of us have. You're born with that. You are born with a nature that is averse to the things of God. You are born with a nature that wants nothing to do with God. You are born with a nature that will not seek after God. You you are declared as the enemy of God until you are brought to repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. You You are His enemy. 
But yet, that hardness of heart also comes through the rejection of truth. Now, I cannot always rationally and put all these thoughts together that sounds coherent to you, so give me just a minute here to try to put this thought together. We have this natural hardness of heart that we have, and yet we also know that there is a continual hardening of our heart as we continue to reject truth when we hear it. So every time I hear truth, the word of God, and I reject it, I am hardening my heart more and more and moving further and further away from the things of God. The more I find fault with what God is speaking to me about through his word, the harder my heart becomes. This voluntary rejection of the truth. Now again, trying to put all these things in line about how God opens our eyes, opens our ears to hear, makes us willing to believe. But there is, in Scripture, there is a clear defined point in which man hardens his own heart and God's allowing it to happen. Go back to that example with Pharaoh. It says clearly, I will harden his heart. But then later chapter, it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now, you and I have to deal with that mystery, and we've got to accept it for what it is. But I will tell you today, if you sit under the sound preaching and teaching of the truth of God's word, and you continue to reject it, you are guilty of hardening your own heart. Because all he has said is to believe. You say again, how can I believe if I'm not brought to repentance? How can I believe if I'm not converted? You're still held responsible for what you do with the truth as it's proclaimed. Voluntary rejection leads to this hardness of heart. It's not just a rejection of even just obvious truth that we would say obvious, but there's also a rejection of even the slightest light that God brings into our lives. Creation is the light of God. A person who rejects creation as a work of God is in the process of hardening their heart. So all of these highly respected scientists that people put so much stock into and say, well, the scientists say this, they don't know the truth. A a rejecter of God's creation is a person whose heart is very hard. These are not heroes, friends. An anti-God creation is not a hero and shouldn't be a hero for our children. Well, this particular scientist is my child's hero. Should that person who denies God be a hero? No. Well, that's just in science. It's a rejection of truth. The Bible is very clear about creation. It's very clear about what this is. Most of your greatest scientists who are respected of all time were self-professed haters of God. Do your research. These are not heroes. These are people who claimed God is a foolish figment of the imagination in their own words. That's a rejection of truth. That's a rejection of the light. There are also warnings that are even given to us. The warning we're being given today, the warning of do not succumb to what the Israelites succumb to. To reject that is to reject God. 
there is this natural hardness of the heart, but there's also the heart that is continually hardened further and further as we voluntarily reject the truth of God. Now, I have not been able to actually see man's heart, the actual heart, but I've seen the results of a heart grow hard right in front of my eyes. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it happen to people that it started off very quietly, it started off very subtly, but I've seen it go out to its full extent. I've seen it go to a place where the heart becomes so hardened because the rejection just fires one after the other. But literally, you can see the hardest of a man's heart just by talking to him or a woman's heart just by talking to them. They become adverse to everything that has to do with God. People that once seemed to be receptive and now are not. There is a hardness of heart that comes when we begin to reject reproof. We begin to reject what we hear in the Word as it's preached. We get to a place where we're past feeling anymore and it doesn't really matter. And we get to a place where now what we used to avoid as sin, now we openly declare, hey, this is what I am now. That is the, that's the evidence of a hardened heart when you glory in sin in any way, shape, or form. So if you're taking your sin and you're displaying it as something to be glorified in, you, I can assure you right now, your heart has already gotten to a very hard spot. Now think about the things that maybe we don't think about that we glory in that actually in the eyes of God is actually sinful. Sometimes our heart can become hardened and we don't even know it's gotten that way. There's a great warning here. But notice the writer goes on and he says about the day of temptation in the wilderness. He gives a very specific. He says, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works for 40 years. A person whose heart is growing hard is a peop- are people that try God's patience and they make presumptions upon his long suffering. There are people today who are doing their own thing today because they make a false presumption that God will be patient with me as if God owes them something. God doesn't owe us a single second of long-suffering or patience. God has within his right to strike us down at any given moment if that is according to his will. There's a presumption that the hard heart makes on God's long-suffering. Oh, I'll reject God's truth today, and when the time comes, when I reach my deathbed, I'll, then I will receive the truth. Most likely, you'll take your last breath rejecting God the same way you're rejecting Him right now. There has been many a genius of a man who has said, I'll wait and see what happens, and my heart then will be tender towards Him. Read the account of Voltaire. Read what he said on his deathbed. He made those assumptions that I will get to the end of my life and he went into eternity blaspheming God, spewing hatred for God. And it wasn't because he never had opportunity. It's because every time the light shined, every time truth came to him, he rejected it and said, I want nothing to do with that. Yet by many, that man would have been considered a genius 
being considered a man that could be trusted. Who are people that try God's patience and presume on his long suffering? He specifically says, the people who saw my works. He's not talking about ignorant people who didn't see God. He's saying, these are people who saw me, proved me, for 40 years they saw what I did, and they still had hard hearts. There have been people who have sat around the things of God for decades, and their hearts are as hard as they were years ago. They've seen God do things, they've heard people testify of God's goodness, and yet they still look at God and they say, I want nothing to do with that. I could tell you stories about families. I could tell you stories about people bringing their families to church and the head of that house, the man of that house, the husband, or maybe even the mother, they wanted nothing to do with God, but they sat in church every single week. They gave offerings to the church. They sent people to, to, to special things for the church. They took care of people, and yet they did not believe God. Because in some way, shape, or form, they thought in themselves, I'm doing just enough to appease God, but I don't want anything to do with God. I will not listen to a sermon. I will not listen to the conviction of the Spirit. I will reject everything that preacher says, and they come with that attitude saying, I will not have it. This happens more than we realize. And notice the response. These miracles that they saw, verse 10, lays it right where it is. God was grieved with them. God was grieved with that generation and said... They do always err in their heart. Now we've got to clear, we have to clarify something here. When the Bible uses the term God was grieved with them, it doesn't mean that God had an emotional response. What the writer of Hebrews is doing is giving us how, how a, in a manner of men we would understand this. It's kind of like when it said God repented that he had done these things. That's not God acknowledging I did something wrong and I got to rethink it and do it the other way. He's using terminology like that so that we'll understand that as people, oh, this grieved God, but it wasn't a new emotion that came on. Does everybody understand that? It wasn't something brand new or that God said, I'm, I didn't know this was going to happen. It speaks after the manner of men, but what it shows us is it does show us the displeasure that God had with them. And the word grief there is more than dis displeasure. It was actually anger. Again, you can't think of God's anger in human terms. God doesn't get angry like we get angry. When we get angry, oftentimes we lose all sense of reality. When you're angry, you're, the ability to reason with you is out the window. It, it, by the way, this is just a little piece of advice. Don't ever try to reason with an angry person. You're wasting your time because it's unreasonable what anger does. God is not unreasonable. His anger is even perfect. And when he talks about God's anger and he talks about God's wrath, he's not talking about in the human term about how we respond. That's why people make foolish statements like, well, I could never follow a God who gets so angry and then he gets angry that he strikes people dead. He can't control himself. That's not who God is. And that's not what God is doing. But what we do see is we see the results of what God's provoking and tempting of God did. He was grieved with that generation. He said, they always err in their heart, and here's the key, and have not known my ways. What was Israel blinded by? They were blinded by their love of their own sin. 
The writer of Hebrews says they always erred in their heart. They refused to be guided by God. They refused it. It's the character of the wicked that they know not God and they take pride in not knowing God. Do you know how many people that are considered celebrities today take pride in the fact that they don't know God? It's a badge of honor for them. I don't know anything about God. I don't want anything to do with God. And people praise them. Again, these were professing people of God who he says, this is what happens to them. They refused to hear. They refused to be led. This was the case of that generation. And we know the story that the Bible describes them as their carcasses fell in the wilderness. God is so mean. God is so unjust. Oh, because sinful man has never provoked God ever. Sinful man is living daily provoking God. Our country's provoking God. A nation that will allow millions and millions and millions of babies to be aborted every year without even thinking twice? You think that's not provoking God? You think this desire to drive God out of everything in our society isn't a provocation of God? And if you think it's only non-believers who believe in abortion, you're not paying attention. There are professing people who are now saying, this is a woman's right. What has happened to the church when the church now says a woman has a right to determine to kill her baby or not? Oh, we're not provoking God. God shed his grace on us. He's not required to continue to be patient and long-suffering with us. And yet, professing people of God is who he's talking about primarily. It's interesting to me, he's not talking about Rome. He's not warning Rome. I had this conversation with someone recently. If you think what, you think our nation's any different than the Roman Empire was, you're not paying attention. There's nothing happening in Rome that happened in Rome that's not happening here. Actually, it's probably worse now than it was in Rome. Oh, but we'll walk around with our eyes blinded to the reality. No, we're not that bad. Oh, it's that bad. And it's that bad not just in non-believers. It's in the professing people of God who have just simply said, hey, we'll make the God of our own. We'll judge what's right in our own eyes. Yet what does he say? He says, they do always err in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Now, he's already said, but they saw my ways. They saw the miracles. Remember this, all sin is a willful departure from the law of God. When you sin, when I sin, it's a willful departure from the law of God. These people erred in their hearts because they had an error in their understanding. They had an error in their desires. They had a, a willing ignorance of the things of God. But not only was sin springing from their heart, but they were feeding it. They were feeding this unbelief. 
To not know the ways doesn't mean that they didn't have the ways. It's they failed to take notice of God's ways of providence towards them. Even for the most hardened atheist, that person, if they really sat back and looked, could not deny God's good acts of grace and his providence towards them. Because God's even been good to the atheist. Now, he'll never, he or she will never claim it unless God does a work in their heart fully, but they'll never even give any credit. That's their own willful rejection. See, again, don't be, don't be so quick to take your responsibility to what you do with what you hear today and say, well, God will make me understand. If that's the way you understand the doctrines of grace, we've still got a long way to go. Because this does not remove responsibility from us. We have a responsibility to respond to what we hear. So what does he firmly declare then verse 11? So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. This is a firm declaration that what was promised to Israel, they will not enter into it. Now, to swear in my wrath is when God uses that terminology of swearing in his wrath means that he says they will not enter. Numbers 14, verses 28 through 35, we read the first part of those verses. He makes an oath, and it says God swears by himself. If God would have let those people enter into his rest after he said they would not enter in, he would cease to be God. Does that make sense? If he said they won't enter, but then God had a change of heart later and said, okay, you can go in now. He'd cease to be God. When God says, I swear that I will do this thing, he's going to do it. There is no, I'm going to reconsider it. I'm going to take it under consideration. Swearing is ascribed to God to show the certainty of the thing in which is being stated. When he swears to love us with an everlasting love, here's one of the great promises. How long is he going to love us with an everlasting love? not a second shorter. When he has promised to give us and to sanctify us, he's going to do that. When he has sworn that there will be a punishment, an everlasting punishment in a very real place called hell that that the modern church wants to run away from, They want to avoid the reality of hell. They want to avoid the reality of the judgment for sin. They want to run away from it because they said, we want want people to come to our church. We want people to come and have a good feeling about things. He swears in his wrath. He swears according to his own displeasure. And the threats that he makes are not human threats. They are perfectly righteous. And they are irrevocable. If you think that someday God's just going to change the plan for what he has for what's coming next, he's not going to change it. Jesus Christ is someday coming again, and all sin will be put down eternally, including all sinners who are outside the body of Christ. There is an everlasting punishment in a very real place called hell that we don't want anybody to experience a single moment of. If you have the heart of God at all, there is nobody you're saying, I hope they get sent to hell. Don't even joke about that. Don't don't even do it in jest. Don't let your kids even do it in jest. It's a fearful thing. 
to be away and turned away from God for all of eternity. While we sit and enjoy what it is to be in a family of God. Our definitions of who deserves hell often does not take into account the own defi- our own definition of what we really are. Because none of us deserve any of these things. They shall not enter into my rest. For the Israelites, it was the land of Canaan. It was called God's rest because he promised it. He gave it to the Israelites as their rest. We know on the seventh day, Jesus himself, or God himself, had a time of rest. He rested on that seventh day. Christ was sent to give a rest for his people. There's a rest that remains for the people of God. And it's much better than this Canaan that's used as our illustration. This is the rest that we find in Jesus Christ. He said this generation did not enter into that. There were many who never entered it. And then the writer says, take heed, brethren, verse 12. This warning is written to us, founded on that Old Testament example, as a caution lest we follow the same path and miss the rest that's found in Christ. Unbelief really was the first sin that was found in man in the garden. Adam and Eve both failed to believe what God had said. That's really what it came down to. They believed the lie of Satan over, the, over what God had already declared to be. It wasn't because they were blinded to the truth. They rejected the truth. Now this take heed, verse 12, we go back to what is said in Psalm 95. There's an exhortation against being like any of the professing believers. Don't have this evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Israel was excluded from Canaan by their own unbelief. They had the promises of God to rely upon. But remember, when they spied out the land, they all said that land is too great. There's too many enemies. There's too many obstacles. Yet Caleb was one of the ones we just saw mentioned who said God has promised to give us that. We we need to go in. There is this exhortation that's being given to us. Fear and apprehension of Israel's own thoughts led them to disregard the promises of God. I am all for being educated. I'm all for knowing what you can grab and get a hold of. But be careful that you do not allow your own knowledge, your personal growth, and your personal intelligence to lead you to disregard the promises of God. The believing Hebrews were being told to stand in faith. Unbelief is sin. Unbelief has a great influence on our heart. The longer you reject God, the more you reject God, the harder your heart gets. I've watched people's heart grow hard in an instant from a single event. I've watched people's heart get hard over a period of time. I've seen them happen both. I've seen people instantly have something happen in their life and immediately they say, I want nothing else to do with God, I'm done. It happens that quick. Now, whether they were a real believer before or not, I can't tell you that. Is it just a person who's back? I don't know. I can tell you this. That's an evidence of a hard heart. But I've also watched people. It's been a slow decline. 
I've watched them question God's direction in their life. I've watched them question God's word. I've watched them start to reject the things of God. I've watched it slowly, 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 slowly before I want nothing to do with it. I've seen it happen to young people. I've seen it happen to older people. I've seen it happen to preachers. I've seen pastors say, you know what? I don't believe any of this. I'm done. And if we think we can sit here today and this will never happen to me, I'm good. I'm one of the elect. I'm good. Again, if that's, if that's all you're doing is you're just saying, I'm one of the elect, I'm good. You're in a dangerous spot. You're in a very dangerous spot. Because that election of God doesn't allow you to just simply say, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I don't really need that truth. I've got it. Sadly, that's what many of the opponents of what we believe the Bible teaches say about you. It's what they say about us. They're saying that, you know, you, you just believe in this election thing and then you can do whatever you want. It, it speaks of the ignorance. They don't really understand what we're saying at all. Because if that's your philosophy, I'm one of God's people because I'm one of the elect and I can do whatever I want to do, you're violating the very thing Paul said not to do. And yet, unbelief appears sometimes very subtly, begins to harden the heart. Suddenly now the Word of God becomes unprofitable. It's not because the Word is unprofitable. It's because man refuses to receive the prophet. Unbeliever becomes unstable in all their ways. It begins to shut out the understanding of the mercies of God. It causes a person to finally depart from dependence upon and confidence in Christ and they begin to rely on themselves. Unbelief closes the door of prayer. If you're an unbeliever and your heart is hardened, don't bother praying. Now that may sound harsh, but if you don't even believe in the very God why would you pray? But unbelief ultimately sets up other gods as your source of reason. Human wisdom and human philosophy becomes what guides your life. And then notice what he says, and we'll finish this. He, noted, he says, lest there be, so take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief. We're told here not just to mind our own things and our own belief and our own hearts, but we should be mindful of the hearts of others. We really are to be concerned about where each other as a church actually are. If we start to see the signs and the evidences of someone's heart being hardened, we should want to help them and we should want to deal with them. We should actually want to exhort and help them and keep them from that place. We are to associate together. We are to support and strengthen each other. We are to individually know each other so well that we should see the evil heart of unbelief rising up. And let me just say this as tenderly as I can. It shouldn't just be the pastors and the elders noticing the evil heart of unbelief rising in people. Other believers should see it. And we should be so interconnected that we know each other as families and we know each other as people. And I'm saying, look, I'm seeing a person that used to have this great dependence on God. Something's happening with them. Something's not right. Right? 
oh, I don't want to offend them. I don't, I, don't want them to think, I don't want them to think badly of me. Listen, we're supposed to associate together and we're supposed to absolutely be concerned about each other. That's what he's talking about here. Don't just mind your own heart. Beware of an evil heart of unbelief in each other. Exhort each other. Warn each other about the dangers they're exposing themselves to. I know this is becoming unpopular in the modern church because all they do is come together and they just say, we just had a great time in the house of God today. Sometimes we should leave the house of God so convicted we're having a hard time getting to the car. Because we know that some of these things are in our life and our hearts have grown hardened. Oh, maybe it's not enough for you to totally reject God yet, but you've started down the road. Folks, I'm not telling you any of these things by any matter of arrogance and pride. I'm just telling you, I have seen this more than once. And there are always, there are always little indicators that something's not right. I've had people I've tried to go to and I've tried to help and I've just been told, I don't ever want to see you again. But I'm not going to be, I am not going to be told I did not come and try to help you and I didn't try to assist you and I didn't try to come and warn you. I think that's every one of our responsibility. When we see another brother or sister in trouble, it doesn't have to be the pastor or the elders go talk to them. You go and talk to them. Say, I'm seeing something in you and I'm concerned about you. There really is a very practical exhortation that's being done here. We're all tempted to look at our own hearts, but we often don't take enough time to look at each other to teach one another. And some of this was mentioned even during our study this morning. We encourage each other by worshiping together. We encourage each other by praying and praising God together. By the teaching and the preaching and studying the scriptures together. By talking about the things of God. Spend more time talking about the things of God than some of the foolish things that are going to pass away in this life. And we ought to warn each other when we're seeing signs of apathy and signs of indifference. Churches are filled with people who are indifferent to everything that's going on. I've, I've heard people flat out say, you know what, I, I'm gonna, that's going to be my church until something happens and I'll just find another one. I'll just go somewhere else. I'm just indifferent to it. Listen, there ought to be such a love and such an encouragement and an exhortation for one another that we don't even want to see a single sign of the evidence of a hardened heart even beginning. And I like, in a sobering way, that he says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, as to say, don't think this can't happen to you. Don't think you can't be deceived by your own sin. Every sin hardens us, folks. This is why we don't take sin seriously enough. Every time we sin, our heart becomes more and more hard to the things of God. We're drawn to it. Let me wrap this up by just simply saying this. We have seen the way that God dealt with Israel was to test them and to bring out the evil of their heart. How is God testing us? God has given us so many proofs of who he is, given us proof of his long suffering. And instead of us being brought to repentance, we find ourselves being hardened in our sin. If you're here today and you're presuming that God is always going to be patient, God's always going to be long-suffering with you, I would beg of you and plead with you, don't reject the truth of what you're hearing today. Don't reject the truth of the gospel. We should cherish every time we hear the word of God 
as a great gift from God. If you're sitting at home sometime this week, and I hope you're doing this, you're in your own personal study, and God is speaking to you through his word, don't take that lightly. Don't take that for granted. I would take one step further. If God starts dealing with you about something like that, I'd encourage you to tell another brother or sister in Christ about it. You'd be amazed how someone else will be encouraged by what God encouraged you with. We should cherish the entire thing of what God has done with us that to be warned against that day of temptation where we're tempted to say, God, I just don't trust you. Prove yourself to me once again. God already said, I have given to you. You've seen my works. You've seen my miracles. Do not harden your own heart. Do not harden your heart in the day of temptation. Let's pray together. Father, these are indeed sobering thoughts and sobering words this morning. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us just to see the great importance of your word today. Lord, there's nothing else we're going to do today, nothing else we're going to see or talk about that matters more than what we've heard already this morning. And Father, we do plead and beg with you, beg you that if there is one among us that has yet to repent and believe the gospel, maybe more, we just pray, Father, that through the sovereignty of your will and through the providential hand of the Spirit working in their life, that they would be brought to conversion that their soul would be regenerated and their eyes would be open and their ears would be unstopped. They would be made willing to believe. And Lord, we know we cannot force that upon anyone, but we certainly pray, Father, if it's your will, Lord, that we would see this. Father, I do pray that you'd help us here that claim to be professing believers. Father, test us and prove us to see if belief is really true, to see if it's really there. Father, I pray that our hearts would be guarded diligently uh, we would not take sin lightly, uh, that we would desire uh, to live a life that is pleasing unto you. Lord, I pray now in these few remaining moments we have in corporate worship to get today, Father, that we would be receptive to your word even now. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. You can remain seated. Let's sing our a closing hymn on 350. 350.